Hi, on the 5th and 6th of June, 2024, I'll be speaking at the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, at the iconic Marina Bay Sands. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Devon, and Balaji Srinivasan, I'll be on a stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over 5,000 attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd and 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register and join me with 20% off tickets using the code REALVISION. Use the link in the description and I'll see you there. It's going to be incredible. Hi there, visionaries. Welcome to another deep dive on the exponential age, which you all know by now is my favorite subject. Look, we're reaching, we've pretty much reached the end of 2023. So I just want to do for this, for this session, something of a lookout to the year ahead, a lookout to 2024, because I think 2024 will be the year when the exponential age and the ideas we've been talking about and that Rao's been talking about here on Real Vision for you know two, three years now, when all of it really starts to bite, really starts to feel real to millions, to billions of people out there, you just have across multiple technologies inflection points now that I think will start to really manifest and start to feel real and have concrete economic and social and knock-on technological impacts. So that's what I want to do. Bit of fun for the end of the year. Look out to 2024. And to do that, I've invited back one of my favorite guests of the year. I know many of you loved um, the first session with him too. Evan Helder, the writer of the brilliant Medium Energy newsletter to talk to us about what we see coming across 2024. Evan, great to have you back. How are you? I'm doing superb. Uh, thanks for having me on to help you guys close out the year. It's an honor. Thank you for coming back. So look, like I said, I want to look out to 2024, <clears throat> and we're going to use some of the brilliant research you've been doing this year as a, as a sort of springboard for that, and talk about three technologies, the metaverse, We'll touch briefly on AI and we'll look at humanoid robots because they are three technological mega trends that really exemplify what I'm talking about, really exemplify the way the exponential age is going to feel real next year. And we're at this kind of takeoff moment. Um, so let's just dive right into it and let's start in something of a surprising place. And that's the metaverse. You wrote a lot about it this year. We all know, and we talked about it in our first um, session, and anyone who missed that should go back and have a look at it. We talked about the Apple Vision Pro and how that's going to how that's going to impact this discussion. Um, you wrote a lot about the metaverse this year, some brilliant pieces, uh, developed a really interesting framework for thinking about the metaverse that we can dive into. So let's start there. And I mean, I have a phrase ringing in my head from one of your pieces, which is the metaverse needs a reckoning. 
So talk to us about that. Why should we care about the metaverse at all when so many people right now have just sort of dismissed it and dismissed all the hype of 20 and 21 as like, you know, that was all hype. It's all irrelevant. We can ignore that. You think they're wrong. Why is that? Mm. Yeah, I think my thinking has evolved a bit since then where it's not the metaverse needs a reckoning. It's that the metaverse does indeed need to be forgotten. <laughs> and I'll explain why I feel that way. To me, it, the term is sort of similar to the notion of like cyberspace or, you know, the information superhighway that people used back in the 80s and 90s. And it's, those, are, those terms aren't entirely wrong, but they're not quite right. And, and why is that? And I think it's because you know, people rightfully dismiss it because no one wants to go live in a completely virtual world. It's not very attractive. I mean, there are some people that already do it today, but the majority of people love their friends and family in this world. They love shopping in the real world. They like going on a walk with their dog in the real world, so on and so forth. I think the reason why I am frustrated by it is because like the, the term metaverse has um, sort of muddied what's actually happening. I think what's actually happening is that it's, it's not about digitizing ourselves, right? And going in that virtual world. It's sort of the, the opposite. It's really this idea that the digital world is sort of evolving in ways that look and feel and are, are more reflective of how the physical world and the real world actually works. It's just, it's just sort of inverse thing that's happening. Um, I like to call it the personification of the internet. I think that's so important because the internet we have right now is not very humanizing, right? If you think about how vast it's become, how complex, how, how important it's become, right? The way we interact with it is not quite keeping up. And it's, it's led to something that is more of a metaverse that people are turned off by than what the metaverse will be. Meaning that it's, it is this virtual world that is an abstraction of what, the real world is and should be, right? And it leads to people behaving in strange ways. Uh, it leads to people communicating um, in nasty and brutish and really negative ways. It leads to people um, worshiping, you know, influencers and ways of living and lifestyles that aren't real and aren't what they really want. Um, it leads to um, so many things that are just not human. And so to me, the metaverse is trying to humanize the internet and is trying to bring the internet into our real world in a more meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that sense that we, you know, we live in this, we live inside this pervasive internet in inside this pervasive connected world. You know, that's a, that, that's, that's a really key line that I took from your piece. We, we live essentially mm -hmm. inside a form of metaverse already. Um, so we may as well make it better. Right. I think that's a yeah, lot of what it's, we're it, it, it leaves a lot to be desired is the idea, right? It, it just like, think about all these different apps you use, whether it's the dating apps, this conversation, um, right. There's this layer of abstraction that makes it not quite what we really want. <laughs> and so it's, it's almost frustrating because it's so close. It's like, it's almost like we've set sail across the ocean and we're setting off on this journey and we're, we're in the eye of the storm, right? Where it's, it's the most difficult, it's the most challenging, it's the most um, full of friction. If we just keep going, I think we'll punch through and, and like the internet will sort of heal itself and come full circle. 
and start to look and feel more like the, the real world we actually so adore and love. And we can talk about like how that actually happens too. Right. Yeah. Ex- I mean, exactly. Because if I think about myself and, you know, so many of the people I know, and I'm, I'm assuming you too, you know, we live online, that, that sense of, of living so much of your life through the internet is, is real and tangible. Um, but that's, it's all mediated still by something that looks like this or, you know, the screen I'm sitting in front of now. And it feels we need to, yeah, we're so close to being able to evolve past that. That's, that mm-hmm. feels so unsatisfactory, which, which takes me to, you know, let's make this concrete. Like, how do you define the metaverse? And I know you feel that mm-hmm. the term, and I completely agree, the term needs to be retired. We can find a better word for this, but calling it the metaverse for now, like what are we, what in your view are we talking about? What is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, to me, it's the internet. It's an internet that is starting to have a deeper sense of and a better understanding for people, places, and things. Right. And it's, it's a fusion with those things as they are in our physical world. And the way that's happening is really an evolution at three layers of the stack. And it's at one layer, it's the experience layer. And that's how we communicate, right? It's how we actually understand and share information. And today (laughs) we're doing it with just like text and some images and some little symbols and it's not how our brains have evolved to understand and consume. Um, something we're hearing a lot about at my current full-time job, which is AWS. And I've heard it from a few customers. They're trying to move to a more visual way of working, right? Something that leads to higher bandwidth of knowledge that is transferred when you're trying to share an idea or get someone to understand something or to hear someone say something, right? And so the simple way to think about that is a spatial 3D interface. Um, the, the example I like to use to help people understand the power of this is I talk a lot about, um, what you see people who are professional card memorizers do, right? They have a full stack of 52 cards and they memorize it. And it's like, it, it's, it seems impossible. It's magic. And what they're doing though, is they're taking a card in their mind and they're thinking about what's called a virtual palace really. So taking the the ace of hearts, they're putting it under the doormat. And then they're taking the uh, king of um, uh, spades and they're putting it under the bed. And there's a spatial association with that. And that gives people superpowers. And so project that out into education, collaboration, um, you know, design and engineering. It just, what's possible is limitless at that point. So that's at the experience layer. At the data layer, it's stuff you guys talk a lot about with, on one hand, yes, blockchain and the idea of more open, uh, immutable, permissionless databases such that we can actually control our data, uh, have better access to our data, um, have digital property rights. But it doesn't have to be just blockchain, right? It could be just data that lives um, in a server that you control. Right? So it could be a server that you control in your house. It's, it's this idea of moving from these mega architectures that are client server architectures where all the data lives in one company's massive database and then we all connect into it and our data about the AI we're tapping into all lives there. Right? To me, this is about, okay, 
that database now moving to the edge, to our machines, to our phones, being able to actually control that data to train the AIs such that we have, you know, AIs that are personalized to us. And it's this, it's this shift of data from centralized, massive, um, uh, you know, we'll call them kind of feudal overlords in this digital realm, if you will, to, to a proliferation of databases back to the user. Um, and then, and then the final evolution is this intelligence layer and it's, it's, it's AI. And so when you talk about these three different technologies, metaverse, AI, and humanoids, to me, they're all the same thing. And the reason that that intelligent layer is so important beyond some of the obvious use cases around automation and whatnot, I really think it has to do with this idea that the human mind is not really evolved and suitable for this world. And you've heard that quote, um, uh, I think it's Edward O. Wilson who says that we have paleolithic emotions, uh, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And I heard a better version of that quote. It actually comes from a book by Kevin Kelly. It's a must-read book at this moment in time um, called What Technology Wants. He talks about this idea of the technium. And the, and, and the technium is uh, the kind of evolutionary properties of technology and how they all compound on top of each other. But as a result of that, technology, if you look at the progress of technology, it's, it's the exponential curve we always talk about. And it's whoop, up into the stars. And then you look at the progress of like our own emotions and our own understanding of ourselves and how we work, how we tick. It's progressing, but it's kind of, it's very linear like this. And then you have that gap with technology, which is controlling us in many ways and it's going up. So that gap is massive. So how do you close that gap? And so to me, ways people do it today is they go and people that I know that actually thrive the best right now, you know, they're seeing a therapist. Some of them have a life coach or a mentor. Um, and that person helps them understand themselves. It helps them stay accountable and do what they need to do. It helps them progress through life. And I think for me, like that's the most, that's the most powerful thing about this intelligence layer is that we're all going to have an emotional support system with a, you know, a therapist that is our, an AI therapist that yeah. really knows us, right? Yeah. A personal coach that really knows us, a mentor that really knows us. We can set a dream. We can set a goal. It's going to check in daily. And it's going to also be able to sense when we're stressed and like just doom scrolling. It's going to, hey, hey, stop. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see... Whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. So this is a really comprehensive theory, comprehensive mm. vision of this thing we call the metaverse that is essentially about a much more human internet. You know, we live inside mm. this all pervasive networked 
entity that we call the internet, but it's totally mediated right now by screens and text and these sort of unnatural ways of being. And we're all Mm -hmm. so accustomed to that. And then we talk about phone addiction and all this stuff. How can we build or iterate or evolve really an internet that that is much more human and much more part of the world around us? And I hugely want to come back to to those ideas in a second. Mm-hmm. Like for, for most people out there, when they hear metaverse, they will think things like virtual reality, augmented reality. You know, they might think Meta's Oculus. They'll think Apple Vision Pro. Um, we're still some way away from that kind of technology mm-hmm. working, aren't we? Like if I play devil's advocate, pe- the people out there will be saying like, you know, like, I don't want to wear one of those. He- you talk about a spatial internet. I don't want to wear one of those headsets. Like, it feels pretty grainy. They don't really work. They're a hassle. They make me feel sick. Like, what's your take on, on where those technologies are heading and the role they, they play in this? Like, are they a necessary part of your picture of the metaverse? I'm in this state where, as I've been in the headset game for eight years now, um, love where it's all heading and still believe in it. But I'm trying to tell people it's not about AR, VR. It's not even about spatial computing. We talked about this a bit last time. Um, it's, it's about experiential computing. And at the end of the day, that's what humans crave. So it makes life more interesting, more fun, uh, creates better understanding is when we experience a thing one for one. And that experience doesn't have to come from complete immersion, right? It can come just from a more spatial representation of a thing, which could be 3D on a screen or, uh, or on your phone in a browser. And that's, that's the focus for most people, most companies right now is what I'm seeing in my, my day job, is that they're just trying to get simulation to work well, 3D to work well. And they're trying to build video games. They're like real world games. And yeah, there's something about that that form of like learning and just seeing a thing. It's like a, you know, a digital twin of the thing, right? Whether it's building a factory, right? Or it's uh, learning about the solar system. Um, doesn't have to be in a headset, right? People, people can navigate that with a mouse and keyboard and it is a huge step function better than just a video that's static and only a one-way, um, a one-way thing. And that's, that's the other big idea. It's not, it's about, the interaction is a huge part of it, right? When I can press a button on something or move something and it responds to me and it can recreate the world as it's going to be and give me a sense of what's going to happen in the future. This is just the whole simulation, you know, value prop. But it's really the idea of simulation becoming more accessible and allowing us to make better decisions and better, you know, communication with each other as we go through those simulations to make decisions about things. And so that can all be done 3D. doesn't have to be headset-based. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's so much to say about the, and I've written about this in Rao's GMI, you know, I did a big piece on simulations and kind of the industrial metaverse I ended up calling it. And if you look at NVIDIA's Omniverse platform and the incredible simulations of physical reality that you see organizations building in there, like you have BMW simulating entire massive mm-hmm. car plants in there and you have retail stores simulating their retail floors you can kind of build a mirror world of physical reality inside this omniverse simulation platform 
And uh, yeah, you don't have to experience it through a headset. It doesn't have to be totally immersive. It can be a simulation that you interact with still on a screen. But it's yeah, it's still a kind of next level internet. And it's changing the way organizations work. And I think that that will be something of a gateway in, for many people into seeing more of this in their own lives. So you have this... Yeah, well, one, well, one thing real quick I want to add to that. Yeah, I'm sure. People with that in mind. Is it sort of a blessing that headsets aren't ready yet? <laughs> because uh, that experience you just mentioned that for, for BMW, and it's taken them almost a year to build that. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's so not scalable and repeatable to build these 3D experiences. So if you even had headsets out in the workforce, you wouldn't have enough applications created at the right velocity and cadence to actually get any real value out of them. And so... Before the headsets can be valuable, you have to solve the 3D content problem. And the really simple way to think about it for people is um, enterprises are starting to try and look, try to look and feel like game studios or visual effects studios. And there's a certain type of infrastructure and tooling in those studios, right? They have these um, systems that can create the, what's called a 3D content pipeline to really quickly produce, iterate, share, and then reiterate on 3D models. They have systems to store and do version control of all these different 3D models, 3D asset management systems. They have ways to spin up workstations in the cloud and stream them to different devices. And that's all critical to like a 3D workflow. And in the enterprise, none of that exists, right? And so until that, it's, it's, it's not sexy. It's, it's the nuts and the bolts and the guts of... Um, a creation process, but until that exists at scale across different brands that want to produce the experiences we all want, the headsets are going to just be kind of empty, empty boxes. And so I think that's one of the big things that starts to flip next year. The investments were made this past year, and you're going to start to see companies who figure that out produce experiences at a higher velocity. And you're going to see things like websites and e-commerce have 3D models. You're going to have websites have a button that says come inside. And that that's one of the big things we're going to start seeing next year. None of that is headset based, by the way. It's all just on the browser and in the web. Yeah, you read my mind because my my next question was, you know, going back to my framing idea at the beginning, that this is the year that in so many ways, the exponential age starts to feel real for people. And I, and I, and I really believe that. I think we're going to see it powerfully. Um, yeah, how do you see this evolving next year? I mean, you have, okay, sure. In, when it comes to headsets, Apple Vision Pro is going to drop like, and it's going to be out there in the world and, and fine. How else do you see this evolving across spatial, which you just touched on, but also across your broader vision of just this enhanced, more human internet, um, touching on AI as well and some of the other kind of dimensions of that that you talked about? Do you essentially do you agree with me that this is that next year will be a kind of biting point moment for this, or do you think that's still too early? I think the biting point moment does come towards the end of next year. So I'm seeing a lot of the things that need to pop. They're still congealing right now, and they're going to be still in that form the next probably Q1, Q2 of next year. But yeah, come Q3, come Q4. I think you have this numerous things happening all at once that are really, really interesting. It's almost eerie. It almost makes you think the simulation is, is real um, in that you, you have the Vision Pro coming online. And so 
while it's not going to be a mainstream device, it's going to be mainstream awareness of what's possible. You're going to have these headsets in stores. And that's the most important thing, I think, is just having these things in every Apple store, people going in there, trying it on, and then just talking about it. And talk about like all, all the downstream effects of that are going to be just massive. Um, and then you have the probably the, the, the maturation of things like ChatGPT from just a text box that's sort of a very ambiguous environment of like, okay, what do I do? How do I need to type it? You're going to have the, the GPT app store coming online and much more prescriptive forms of, of using AI to do more interesting things, um, which I think is going to be wild. And then that converging with the fact that these models can now run on our personal devices. I think people are still tinkering with that. I don't think developers have really figured out applications <clears> to make it work. There's been lots of great R&D work around running like the massive meta open source model. I think it's, it's called Llama, right? Llama mm. 3, right? Running it, people are running it locally. And so I think over the next six, 12 months, you have developers start to figure out how to build apps that take advantage of that. And <laughs> it's going to lead to quite the, uh, the upheaval across the the cloud world where I work because so many of those workloads, yes, the training workloads are going to be happening in the cloud still, but the inference, inference happening at the edge and the inference now happening on headsets. And when you have the vision pro now doing inference on the headset, you know, taking information about who you are or where you are, who you're with, what you're doing, and then providing intelligence, intelligent experiences based upon that. We're going to see that towards the end of next year. And that, that to me is the ultimate bite. <laughs> and and there, there is a video in my uh, spatial computing um, essay uh, we did with Nike, in which a designer is designing a shoe and talking to the headset, talking to a person, and they're just collaborating with AI and producing content. And it's that human AI real-time collaboration. When we see that happening in real time and producing production-grade products, that's going to be end of next year, early next year. And boom, that to me yes. is the moment. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Hi. On the 5th and 6th of June, 2024, I'll be speaking at the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, at the iconic Marina Bay Sands. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Devon, and Balaji Srinivasan, I'll be on a stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over 5,000 attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd and 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register and join me with 20% off tickets using the code REALVISION. Use the link in the description and I'll see you there. It's going to be incredible. Yeah, I just think that that is an extremely compelling sort of vision of, of, of next year and, and of what I'm talking about. Like, I don't think people grasp the, the wave of change that, that feels as though it's accumulating and is, it is a wave that's sort of set to break and has to break next year when you have the Apple Vision Pro coming, when you have, as you say, sort of new manifestations and, and, and applications when it comes to large language models. Um, you know, I was in 
for the exponentialist, every month, Raoul and I do a, do a fireside chat. We get together and we sort of share what we've been thinking about this month. And this is what we were saying, you know, the, the wave of change coming around large language models next year will, will dwarf even what we've seen this year. It feels insane that it's, you know, roughly 12 months since chat GPT was dropped on everyone. It feels like a lifetime ago. Um, Look at what we've seen across the last 12 months. But I think how long ago was it? Was it a year? Was it a year and a half? Yeah, it was like it was chat GPT was like November 2022. So it's like 13, it's like 12 and a half months. It feels like five years (laughs) because so much has happened since then. Um, that's insane. But if you spend as much time that that backwards looking is like the first time where you're it's like being on an airplane, you look down and you, you can see the separation between the runway and the plane. We haven't already seen that separation so clearly, but now it's like my gosh, we're, we're taking off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a delta exactly. there. Uh, and I, I think, yeah, for most people, you know, large language models and chat GPT is like you say, still this kind of fairly raw kind of text box and they don't really know what to do with it. Um, and it just, it feels pretty, it feels a little difficult for most people to, to really, yep. to, it's not deeply intuitive. But next year, we're going to see it wrapped in all kinds of applications and all kinds of other manifestations. I mean, if you spend as much time on Twitter as as I do, and I know many people do, or what we're supposed to call X now, um, you know, you'll have seen those insane clips of the like virtual companion girlfriend going around this week. And uh, like it's getting, re- like you said, like really, really weird. Uh, and that's what people need to be prepared for in 24. We're going to have this conversation about spatial computing. We're going to have generative AI and conversational AI just going to a whole other place. And then, as you said, we're going to have edge AI. And surely Apple are going to do something with that super soon. You know, they have this powerful AI inferencing capability on their devices through the chips. They're going to put a large language model in those devices that you can use no internet required and just have this insane like 24 7 virtual companion talking to you all the time counseling you all the time all of that is going to make the exponential age tangibly real in a way it's not for so many people now um do you think meta by the way do you think meta's sort of ai companions are going to play a big role there you know like zuck launched you know, these oh, yeah. celebrity-fueled AI companions at, at Meta Connect. I, I'm not oh, so sure that that's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's the right play. I mean, it's going to be interesting watching that unfold. Yeah, I'm not so sold on the companions and their current form factor, but I am very sold on um, the glasses they're building with AI built into it to kind of give you agency in all moments in time, right? Because it's like, it's giving the AI eyes and ears. And that's also going to be a thing that most people are going to be for the first time exposed to starting right now and all throughout next year. And yeah, again, there's no visual, there's no visual thing there, right? It's, it's just, um, it, it, but it is augmented reality though, or you could even argue it's virtual reality. It's, it's intelligence and language that is augmenting your reality uh, in a sense. And so I think that's one of the big themes and trends is that augmented reality and virtual reality starts to evolve away from a purely visual immersive thing. And it's just an, uh, ex- anytime your experience is augmented or enhanced in a digital way is going to be 
augmented or virtual reality. And that is the metaverse in its most simple essence, for sure. Right, right. And I should say, um, if you have visionaries out there, viewers out there, if you have questions for Evan, indeed questions for me, please do throw them in the chat. Um, we'll try and come to some questions at the end if there are any, of course. So yeah, let's move this on a bit because we've talked about the metaverse and your, you know, your broad, comprehensive vision of it as a more human internet and the way spatial plays into that, the way the edge plays into that. It really feels like the AI is, of course, I mean, we've said this so often this year, AI is fundamental um, and it can act as something of a bridge to where we want to go next in the conversation because your vision of a more human internet and and a more immersive internet in in a in every sense not just spatial computing but an internet that's more human and even part of the world around us taps into and really is an analog of some of the some of the deep thinking and research i've done this year about the exponential age and how we characterize it um and a really powerful way to characterize it is as the deep merging of information and physical reality, the merging of the mm. realm of bits and the realm of atoms so that information becomes a part of the world around us. Okay, and you're going to see that through spatial computing. You're going to see that through AI and in, and in other ways. And one of the most powerful ways you're going to see it is the emergence of essentially autonomous, intelligent objects that are fueled by AI um, and because they have intelligence, they're able to navigate the world around us, do useful work in in the just be a part of the world around us in an entirely new way. That's 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 the internet and the realm of bits be it moving into physical reality. And one of the key ways we're going to see that that we're all excited about, and that you've written about a lot towards the end of this year, is humanoid robots. And it feels as though we are at the beginning of a takeoff moment for that technology. Talk to us about humanoid robots, why you wanted to write about them at the end of this year and where you think it's all going. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the main reason I was drawn to it is I do think it's the ultimate marriage of spatial computing and AI. Uh, it's the same tech stack, the same computer vision technology, um, similar, uh, ways to understand and navigate the world, mapping of the world, visual positioning systems. So all the same stuff that you're seeing the Apple Vision Pro headset become really good at. And I think what's exciting about it is that it's, you know, after the internet, if you look at the, the business opportunity and the TAM, the, 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 the total addressable market for this, it's one of the largest business opportunities that it currently exists. Um, it's going after the physical labor market right? Which is a $45 trillion market. And within that market, there are some pretty major challenges and, and pretty big. Um, there, there's huge gaps in people who are willing to do that work, right? There's a labor shortage and that's manifesting in all kinds of industries, be it, you know, manufacturing, um, construction, uh, agriculture, uh, even elderly care and, and healthcare. And so I think those are some of the biggest problems to go solve. I think humanoids might be one of the best ways to go do it. I think the, the macro and kind of meta theme to all of it is that 
we are at a bit of a crisis point when it comes to um, the extent to which we need GDP to grow really, really fast <laughs> in order to address the, jet, the, the, the debt to GDP conundrum that we're in and the amount of debt we have. And then how, like, oh, there's so many things that come from that, right? We're trying to basically inflate away our debt. That's our best solution to the problem. And that leads to all the things you go down the uh, rabbit hole and it leads you to Bitcoin and whatnot. But the only other way to fix that problem is just to boost productivity dramatically. And I don't know what creates exponential leaps in GDP beyond something that can kind of have the economic impact of humanity itself, <laughs> which is sort of a kind of a very philosophical way to put it. But I heard someone say that recently, like, think about the economic impact of humanity and what the human mind and human hands are able to go do even like 100, 200, 500 years ago. And then think about what that could be now when you have hundreds of millions, if not billions of humanoids running around. And that um, leads to all kinds of other philosophical questions like what, what I think Raoul Paul talked about, which is do humanoids become a demographic in their own, in, the, in themselves? Yeah. I think potentially, but I, I just think the, the economic uh, implications are so huge. The philosophical implications are fascinating. And I think there's probably a way where we could build these things to actually help us tremendously. Yeah. And I just, I think, you know, one of the core things people need to understand here, and you, you know, you touched on it, is the way that this, this technology is going to be so powerfully supported by structural demographic megatrends that, that we just can't argue with. I mean, across the global North, you have deeply aging populations, um, mm -hmm. falling working age populations, and barring some kind of, I mean, I want to say miracle, but it would have to actually be some kind of Armageddon. <clears throat> That's not going to change. You know, that, that kind of population growth is not coming back. Um, mm -hmm. And if GDP is essentially population growth plus productivity plus debt or whatever, like what can we move in the end? We can own, if, if the population growth is not coming back, we can only move the productivity and we can only do that via technology. And that fundamental thought is the birth of the exponential age thesis. Why are these technologies so profoundly important for our future? Why should everyone on Real Vision give a shit? Because it would appear this is the only way out. The only needle we can move is on productivity um, if we want to keep growing GDP. And humanoid robots are going to play such an important part of that. Now, look, we all saw, or many of us will saw, if you didn't see it, go and check it out, the, the clips of the Generation 2 Optimus that were shared on X, like very impressive, handling an egg like very dexterously. Yeah, it's wild. Doing its little walk and everything. I mean, it, impressive stuff, uh, but there's a lot of yoga. It can do yoga. Yeah, it can do a bit of yoga. But I, I will put that <laughs> online, for example, and some people will say to me, um, like, yeah, this is all just entertainment. You know, why do we need why do we need robots that look like humans? Um, what's the what what in your view is mm -hmm. the answer to that? Like, why humanoid robots mm -hmm. important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a couple arguments there. I think the the biggest and best one is that you know we already have a built world that was designed for humans. And it's sort of like this natural existing API. Uh, to interact with that world, be it the door handles we built, um, the walkways, the stairs, um, the tools we wield, 
these are all things built for humans, for human hands and human form. And so if we can just get it right once, we can then cast a much wider net across so many different environments and use cases. And it's the, the overall incentive from a business standpoint is just massive there, right? You don't have to go build a bunch of little point solutions and then hope and sticks. You can just bet all in on one and then find a few use cases that it's going to work for. Um, I also like to think about just like our home, right? I don't want to have 20 robots zipping around my house for 20 different use cases, <laughs> right? I, I love to just have one robot that can go into my closet and come back out and like do all these different things, be it fold my laundry, take out the dishes, take out the trash, walk the dog, you know, so on and so forth. Um, yeah. And then I, I think there's also, it's just natural for humans to want to extend themselves in some kind of way. And I think one of the more subconscious reasons that people are striving for this is that we are still such a mystery in how we operate and how our brains work. And a lot of people like to talk about humanoids as probably our best shot at creating AGI, right? Artificial general intelligence. And text can only get us so far. I'm seeing some articles come out now that like we're going to run out of text data in the next like three to five years. And intelligence comes from interaction and with the chaos of the real world, the complexity of the built world, the uncertainty of the real world. And so you need that real world data, um, that behavioral data, I think, to create AGI. And then the extension of that becomes, okay, we can create intelligence, understand the mind a bit more. To me, I think for a lot of people, one of the biggest mysteries is still consciousness. And so the thing that I'm the most excited about humanoids existing is like, is this a way for us to better understand ourselves, better, better understand the mind, gives a peek into what consciousness finally is. And I know it's getting kind of hand-waving philosophical, but I don't know what better path there is to understanding consciousness than to try to recreate it. Um, Right. So I, I think, I, yeah. yeah, I think sort of embodying, embodying machine intelligence is yep. feels as though it's, it has to be a crucial part of building a more powerful intelligence, building what some people might, yeah, what we would probably want to call it a super intelligence or some form of AGI, like a totally disembodied machine intelligence of the kind we have at the moment. It's hard to feel that that's a general intelligence. It has no sense of of the physical world around it i mean where so i've done i've i've gone pretty deep down humanoid robot uh in 2023 i mean obviously we all know about optimus and tesla and the position we're they're building and we we can talk about that in a minute i think agility robotics have achieved a real coup getting their digit humanoid robot on trial inside um fulfillment amazon fulfillment centers in the us i mean it we're going to see how that how that trial plays out but as you very well know because you work at aws you know a, one of the world's largest employers you know 1.2 i think million people inside fulfillment centers that's a lot of human labor potentially about to be displaced um but you like give us a sense of the key players from your perspective because you actually Look, went pretty deep on um mm -hmm. on a on a startup that isn't on that many people's radar mm -hmm. when it comes to humanoids. Yeah, yeah that was uh, beyond imagination, and they have a humanoid called the uh, the Beyond Beyond B O M N I uh, robot, 
And I latched onto them because of their really practical approach to trying to get humanoids to be useful today. And also the fact that they're using spatial computing or AR and VR to, to bring that utility. And that's also, I think, one of the reasons why this human form factor makes a lot of sense is because it's going to be a while before these things can be fully autonomous. There's also going to be tons of use cases where you want to uh, control it yourself. And so beyond, uh, beyond imagination is, is using VR to let users remote in and control the robot like an avatar, right? So you can now be a worker in one of these Amazon fulfillment centers or in a big factory or on an oil rig. Now you don't have to put yourself in harm's way. You can stay at home and you can throw on a headset and you can play a virtual game of sorts and actually do real world work and get paid very handsomely for it. Um, and then eventually you can do that and control fleets of robots. Now you have these people who have a unique skill set and they a unique understanding of these physical places, probably not getting paid that well for it for their one-off one-to-one work. But now they're controlling fleets of robots and having a much outsized, much more outsized impact. They can command more pay. Um, and enjoy their jobs, be home with their families. And so that, that idea of using humanoids as avatars to me is just fascinating. Um, especially when it comes to things that are going to be super complex, like, um, running into a burning building, right? Someone's life's on the line. I don't really want to depend on the AI to make the perfect decision, but if I can have a human at home controlling it, running through the fi- the, the burning building, that's pretty compelling. Or how about traveling through space, right? Landing on yeah. an asteroid walking yeah. around the moon, walking around Mars, controlling it through VR. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty awesome one. So, that, so that's beyond imagination. I can go to the other ones too, if you want me to kind well, of summarize I mean, I, what I, I do, doing. I do find yeah. that fascinating. And there's a couple of other startups taking that approach where essentially, yeah, you build a humanoid that's a kind of puppet for a human, mm-hmm. for a human user. And perhaps they're, yeah, perhaps they're using a headset, perhaps they're using a screen to pilot that humanoid around. Um, and you can see, and this is where we can get into, you know, Tesla a bit. You can see two competing approaches to, to, to the ultimate challenge, which is how can you train yeah. a, a, a machine vision model so that these things can walk around in the end completely autonomously. You can make yeah. a whole ton of them and have them piloted by humans, and in and that becomes training data that in the end allows you to train exactly. a model to let these things do it autonomously. Or you can get your training data from somewhere else and train a model and do it that way. And obviously what Tesla are doing is the second one and the training data is coming from hundreds of thousands, like millions of on-road Teslas and full self-drive beta, which has had its problems and, and all the rest of it. Now, the, the borderline consensus view is that long-term, it's hard to see how anyone beats Optimus because Tesla has an unbeatable training data set, building an unbeatable machine vision model, all fueled by Dojo, which is like an insane supercomputer for machine vision. And so in the end, Optimus is going to be like the, the one bot that rules all the, the, the bots, the humanoids. What's your take on that? Mm-hmm. Are you convinced? Mm-hmm. I'm convinced they're going to win the manufacturing market. For sure. I mean, Tesla has this incredible internal flywheel where they are their own first customer and they're going to absolutely figure out all the nuances of making that robot work well in these sort of assembly line, um, factory 
uh, type settings. So I, it's hard to compete there. And what's, what's really incredible about that flywheel is that you're going to have them using these robots, um, creating massive, massive efficiencies, you know, lowering the cost, taking that cost savings, pumping it back into the R&D effort of the robot, advancing it further, getting further efficiencies and cost savings. And just as that flywheel goes, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I view Tesla as a spatial computing company because of the amounts of visual and vision, um, uh, overall computer vision data that they are gathering. But if you think about it, I mean, it, they're gathering data from cars about the world and from factories, but it, it's not capturing much of that long tail of use cases. Um, like I want my robot to make me sushi. <laughs> like I, I don't like Tesla doesn't have uh, a monopoly on that experiential data. And so as we move from a world of large language models to large behavior models, LBMs, mm. which is basically going from like next word prediction to next action prediction, um, there's gonna be some pretty cool ways to train those. And, and, and that's one of the things about beyond imagination that I was compelled by is it wasn't just this convergence of spatial computing and AI with the VR headset plus the robot. There's also this convergence of decentralized networks and marketplaces with AI. And there's a bit of a blockchain component there. And, you know, they're not investing heavily in this yet, but I've been talking to the founders and they, they do see this as where they want to go. And the only way you compete with Tesla is tap into the hive mind of people in the world, right? You tap into, you crowdsource, crowdsource that data. And so what's interesting about these people who I talked about before who can be remoting in to an avatar, to a, a humanoid via a VR headset, it could actually be contributing, like you said before, training data to a model. And the marketplace vision that Beyond Imagination has is that you have a, a two-sided marketplace where you have people that want to create a behavior, they want to create an app, they want to create a service, and they need tons of help to do that. So they can post a job, just like on Upwork, post a job. I'm, an, I'm a sushi expert. I come in, I put on my VR headset. I'm making sushi and making all these different types of sushi. I'm uploading that data. And now how do I track that data contribution? How do I get paid for it? Well, this is where things like NFTs and blockchain come into place. People think NFTs are, you know, profile pictures. It's just a data wrapper to point to ownership. And so I could wrap that data, I could wrap that around any kind of data set to track it in any kind of way I want to. And then if I can easily pay people for micro contributions with cryptocurrency for the data they're contributing to a large behavior model, that's a pretty fascinating way for people, for people to make money. That is an incredible that, vision. Yeah. yeah. And imagine, yeah. I mean, like if you, you know, imagine what we'll see around sort of decentralized versions of that. I mean, there's no reason why millions of strangers can't kind of aggregate uh, inside a DAO, inside a decentralized organization. Exactly. Um, it just say like, let, let's gather like a hundred thousand or a million kind of um, fulfillment center workers or delivery drivers or sushi makers or whatever. And let's all kind of wear smart glasses. And I, I just had lunch with a friend from Meta and he's like wearing his Meta smart glasses and everything. Let's all wear smart glasses. Let's, let's collect this footage of us doing the job, aggregate it all, train like a, our own model and sort of license model, a, a, a large behavior model for this very domain specific task. Very interesting. And perhaps we'll, that's how we'll see people trying to compete with 
yeah. what would what would appear to be the emerging dominance of uh yeah you know, like uh, tesla and optimus in this space yeah i think um i think that example also makes a lot of sense in a world where jobs are being lost and people talk a lot about um ubi mm. universal basic income and i don't know if ubi is the solution but um i think no doubt you need to create all new ways all kinds of nuanced long tail ways for people to make money and people complain about crypto and blockchain is oh it's the it's, it's the financialization of everything it's like yeah that's exactly what it is that's exactly what we need to happen we need to be able to fin financialize and be able to get paid for and track and monetize our data um our culture like you know things in our culture that you know i've heard Raul talk about this idea of um unlocking intangible value right and so unless we have all these different ways to do micropayments to track contribution to create more marketplaces create more incentive mechanism um incentive mechanisms to bootstrap these markets all things that crypto is very good at we're not going to have ways for people to make money and fill that gap when they stop doing the other more manual physical jobs that these humanoids are going to all take away right uh, yeah and i think you know, wrapping crypto into this conversation is so valuable and people need to understand that the nature of value and the nature of human labor is being so profoundly reshaped. And mm -hmm. crypto is a way that we reinvent those things to empower people anew. And if we don't yeah. manage that reinvention, it could get pretty dark. You know, because yeah. let's let's finish on humanoids just really briefly, because the hour, crazily, mm -hmm. the hour it's almost up. Like the mm -hmm. social implications of this are vast, and and in terms of it biting in twenty four, you know, I can see in twenty four Amazon, Amazon going to say something about what happens next with the digit humanoid robot, and what they say next may have implications for hundreds of thousands or millions of jobs. And then you might see Walmart moving. You might see other big logistics players moving when it comes to humanoids. And very quickly, the social implications of it and the economic implications for ordinary people start to feel very real, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And some people don't like this idea, but um, yeah, there is going to be a, a growing pain period. There's going to be a, a three to five year, maybe it's a 10 year window. Where there's going to, things are going to probably break and there's going to be upheaval. And that is something we just have to prepare for and embrace because it's always happened. <laughs> um, this will be at a bigger scale, but to me, the, the source of the problem is people that don't have the skills. You're going to have people who get, who get displaced, right? And then they're going to be unemployed and lacking the skills to go do certain things. But just like AI taketh away, it giveth, right? AI is the great equalizer. And spatial computing is the great educator. And you combine those two things, people can level up and skill up. And it's so much faster, right? And I think to me, that's probably the biggest thing that has to happen is our education system needs to wake up to that and realize that, oh, wow, we have these new tools, new forms of education, and a new meaning of who the student is and how to access that student. It's not, the student isn't gonna be, you know, just K through 12. And it's not gonna be college anymore. The student's gonna include this whole 
group of displaced workers. And you're going to see a whole system of education prop up to support them because it's there's a business opportunity there. And there's a huge altruistic impact and a huge economic impact. Get those people smart on what it means to you know, work with the intangible value world, right? Things like music, culture, entertainment, and how you can make money there in these game worlds, how you can actually contribute training data and use uh, crypto in these new different ways. And all those things lead to, you know, income streams that look and feel like UBI, right? It's like micropayments coming in for certain contributions and certain things. It's not, it's not having a job. It's, it's doing work, right? Um, and I think that's one of the biggest things we have to shift is moving from a world of jobs and employment to a world of like micro work across all different types of domains in interesting ways that spin up an AI to tap into it and get you paid for it. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I think this is a great place to end. And I totally agree. You know, the wave of change is co- that's coming and we've talked across spatial computing, across AI, across real world AI and humanoid robots the wave of change that's coming is just so deep. Um, it's going to be something to be hold. There's going to be huge economic and social disruption. And so many roads lead back to, I think, two places, our education system and the way we prepare people to, to live inside this new world we're building and our institutions. You know, We need to remodel our institutions of government and probably our corporations um, to, to accommodate an, an entirely different set of socioeconomic circumstances. And so much of it does point towards, yeah, the remodeling of value and, and people need to get their head around the idea essentially that we're going to need to pay people for entirely different sorts of things because the old, many of the old jobs are just going to, are just going to go. And that's a, it, it's going to be very painful, but there's a huge opportunity latent in it. Okay. Look, I have one question that I'm going to put to you from the audience mm-hmm. uh, super quickly sure. because we're essentially out of time. Uh, Marty F asks, and this taps into the kind of way this all feels somewhat science fiction. So it's a nice, it's a nice one to go into Christmas on. Historically, <laughs> Hollywood has driven the innovations in technology from what they show on screen. Um, do you see this same trend for the metaverse and AI or is the innovation coming from another source? You know, essentially, is this all being driven by our science fiction writers and and the media, or is it, or is it the technology that drives the science fiction? It's a bit of a chicken. It's the eternal chicken and egg question, right? And I've thought I've actually written about this before. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating, it's a great question. Maybe I'm a bit biased as someone who's writing, and and it's it's funny that that was asked because the whole purpose of my newsletter and podcast is exactly this, which is. Our progress is determined by the stories we tell and the imagination we can harness. And Hollywood's done a great job at showing, you know, certain forms of augmented reality or what AI could possibly do. But then the world that those things are happening in is a kind of usually a pretty depressing one, <laughs> right? The stories they tell are, you know, of Black Mirror and the Terminator and, you know, fear, fear sells and drama, drama sells. But I really think we need to do a much better job of telling stories that depict what's possible when we do harness all the upside of these tools, but we succeed in keeping those risks in scope and navigating them appropriately. And so we need more stories of optimism and hope and of, of these utopias. No one, no one tells stories about utopias because they're probably boring. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking a lot about like, what are some cool short story sci-fi things we could be um, creating that do have the drama, right? Maybe it's interhuman relationship drama, but it's amidst a world that is just uh, full of abundance and opportunity. And so um, the simple answer is I do think sci-fi and storytelling is going to be the tail that wags a dog. Yes. And I think that, you know, compelling, fascinating utopias and utopian visions are what we need right now. You know, there, there's something fascinating and there's something compelling naturally about dystopian visions, but we need we need some more of the brighter visions too. We need we need some bigger, more compelling answers to what do we want? What are we supposed to be moving towards? And medium energy has that vibe, and that is the part that is one of the many reasons I love it. So look, to wrap up, remind people where they can find you online and where they can find mm -hmm. medium energy. Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's a newsletter on Substack. It's just mediumenergy.io. Uh, the podcast is called Medium Energy. And uh, yeah, it's all about technology, being human, and how to find the balance between the two. I'm also on Instagram at, at Evan Helda. So follow me there. And uh, yeah, a lot of great interviews to come, maybe even you on the podcast or vice versa. And um, yeah, I'm excited about the next year. It's going to be an exciting one. And, and the key theme, the final thing to say is that the main thing to watch out for is these intersections of AI, of spatial, of blockchain. They're all part of the same tech stack and they're converging in a really, really powerful, exciting way to transform the, the world, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us once again, Evan. And it certainly won't be the last time. We'd love to have you back <laughs> next year. I'm awesome. really excited to see um, the journey with Medium Energy. And look, visionaries out there, um, thank you so much for taking uh, the Exponential Age journey with us in 2023. I will be back next year with lots more postcards from the exponential age lots more brilliant guests like evan including evan too we'll get him back for sure um if you want to go even deeper on this stuff check out uh raul and i's research service the exponentialist you can find that at realvision.com the future where we're going really deep on these exponential age themes uh, month after month but yeah for now wishing you all out there a great holiday season, a great break. Next year, it all starts to feel real. It all starts to feel tangible in a way it hasn't yet. There is a thrilling, fascinating, somewhat terrifying year ahead. Um, <laughs> and we're going to be watching it closely. We hope you enjoyed this episode. At Real Vision, we arm you with the expert knowledge, time-efficient tools, and a powerful network to help you succeed on your financial journey. Get a taste of financial freedom with our free offer at realvision.com forward slash free. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.